Good morning, everyone. So we are continuing our study of the commands of Jesus. And if you recall, one of the uh, goals of this study is that we are not just hearers. I, I said that as Christians, uh, and that one illustration that we, we can memorize these things. Oftentimes we can learn them in Greek and things like that, but we don't do them. Like we can talk about them. We talk about what it would be like if we did them. But oftentimes we don't do them. So the goal in this whole study is that we, we look at these commands, we understand the commands, but then we do what the commands are asking us to do. Uh, and so this morning, yet last week we talked about loving our enemies, and this morning we are going to talk about loving our neighbor and then loving one another. All right. So John fourteen fifteen, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then 14, 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose my, myself to him. So what what does the Lord command us to do? And, and I think it's interesting, too, because he's commanding us to love. And if you think about that for a few moments, you'll think, well, hold on a minute. You can't really command someone to love you. That doesn't really work. It doesn't end well. I can't say to my kids, you will love me or you're grounded. <laughs> that you tend to get the opposite effect of that. That, you know, they'll grow up and as soon as they get their, their teenage years, next thing you're like, I can't stand you. Don't talk to me. Get out of my face. So how can, how is it that God, how is it that the Lord Jesus can command us to love him? And, and a lot of people take offense to that. Like how God, God commands me to love him? Like what kind of God is that? Uh, and, he, and he doubles down on it too. He says, this, is, this I command you that you love one another. So it's not enough that we just love God. We have to love one another. Uh, last week, uh, Brother John talked about the love that you read about when it's talking about God. There, there's different, like in English we have love. We're stuck with love. That's all we have, one word. In Greek they have three words for love. There's eros, which is um, that like love between a husband and a wife, right? And then you have uh, the uh, it's, uh, philia, like philadelphia, <laughs> brotherly love, like that sort of stuff. like uh, philosophy is the love of knowledge, love of wisdom. Sophie is wisdom. Philosophy, the love of wisdom. But in in when the Bible talks about God's love, it's agape, and agape love in, in Scripture, it's the love that's the it's the highest form of love, and it's. It's love that is given by choice, not because of attraction or obligation. And the, the interesting thing about agape love is it's totally other-directed. If you think about that for a minute, which is not the way often that we love. It's a totally selfless love. In other words, we get nothing in return from, from loving like that. So... If we say that God is love, what, what do we mean by that? What does that mean, that God is love? And what we mean by that is that that by his nature, God's very nature, God, God is the definition, grounding, and, and uh, being of love. So if, if you say, like, well, what, what, is, like, what is love, if you wanted to define that, to, to say that what love is, it's to be like God. To be like the nature of God. That's what love is. And 
so then you get the question, well, if God is love, is love God? Is that how that works? If God is love, is love God? And no, right, because love is a manifestation of God's nature. So they're, they're not two equivalent things. And so then when we say, well, well, how do we know what love is? He's demonstrated what that is. And so we see in 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. That's what we were thinking about this morning. How is it that the, the infinite God would create this universe knowing, because one of the things we'll talk about in a second here is that God is maximally great. Well, if you're maximally great, that means you're omniscient. And if you're omniscient, you know everything, which is hard to think about, too. You don't think about it. Like, oh, like, I I just made a decision. Like, you would already know what you are going to decide. So you would just know everything all at once. And so when God decides to create the world, if you want to say decide like that, like, he already knew all that that entails. And he knows that he's going to create man... And he's going to give man the freedom to choose because he's going to give man the option to love him. He wants to create a being that has the capacity to love him. That's We're created in a way that we can relate to God. I think I gave this example before. My dog is not on the same level as me. Like We have a relationship, but we don't have the same relationship that I have with my kids. I can't sit down and have a conversation with my dog because he's not made like me. He doesn't sit around and think about what it means to be a dog every day. He's not composing poems in the afternoon and then he comes home and, you know, or helping himself to a snack in the fridge, things like that. Like, he can't figure that out. But my kids can do that because they're, we're, we're of the same essence. So God creates mankind. We're made in the image of God so that we can have a relationship with him. We have the capacity to choose to love him. But he knows that given the choice, what happens? We rebel. And so that necessitates, if he wants to have that relationship restored, that he's going to have to bring us back to himself. God knows all this. Before he does anything, he knows all this. And so he decides to create us, not only not only create us, and, and we talked about this this morning, it's not that we were pretty bad, but we, we felt sorry for it, we were begging God to come save us. No, like even his own nation, the nation of Israel, his chosen people, what did we read this morning? They abhorred him. They abhorred him. That when when the Lord Jesus comes on the scene here, it's not like people are like, finally, God has sent his son to rescue us. No, they, they beat him. They spit on him. They hung him on a cross. They said, we will not have this man to rule over us. But he loves us enough to do it anyway, to buy us back. That's That's what love is. So... Hey, there we go. So we, we run into this, too, because I'm trying to hit all this stuff, because you hear this stuff when you, as soon as you walk out the door, you hear, love is love. Is love. Right? What, what about that? Love is love. Is that true? Well, not if it's in conflict with God's commands, because God's commands flow out of his nature. So God, God's commands flow out of his nature in, in that, just like God is love, God is also good. You say, well, what is good? To be good is to be like God. God is perfectly good. And so all of God's commands are perfectly good. And so if you're if you're violating the commands of God and loving in a way that's not sanctioned by God, then that's not love. Because it's contrary to what God is like. 
And I have, I have this quote from uh, William McDonald. I think this sort of sums up that whole topic. He says, lust cannot wait to get. Love cannot wait to give. That's agape love. Love cannot wait to give. If you look at the, the people who are advocating the love is love thing, their lust cannot wait to get. Like, they want something. I want, I want a love like this. I want this because of what it does for me, how it makes me feel. That's not how God loves. His love is totally directed towards us. When we, when we accept Christ as our Savior and we are born again, God wants to have that relationship with us. He longs to have that relationship. But, but I don't add anything to God. God's not more complete because Josh Klein accepted his offer of salvation. It's totally directed towards me. I'll spend eternity enjoying him. And he'll enjoy me, but he doesn't need me. I need him. There's a difference there. So, uh, we want to talk about <coughs> this in a practical way this morning. And so, uh, let's turn to Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles with you, Luke chapter 10. And this is the, we, we say the parable of the Good Samaritan. It doesn't say that in the Bible, the Good Samaritan, but we know, see, we know good when we see it. And so, this has been called the Good Samaritan. So, Luke chapter 10, and we'll start reading in verse 25. It says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? So this is the lawyer asking Jesus, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, okay, you know the law. How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Straightforward. How do I get eternal life? Ah, Just do that. Here's the question. Has anyone ever done that? No. But Jesus did. But he didn't need to get eternal life. He already had it. None of us have. Have you loved the Lord your God with all your mind, all your soul, all your strength? No, of course not. Right? And you say, oh, how could you speak for me? Because I'm, I'm a human too, right? Like, we're all the same. No. But this guy, notice he's a lawyer, right? So wishing to justify himself, <laughs> he says to Jesus, okay, and who's my neighbor? Because we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Who's my neighbor? I, I, I think it's interesting, just in this, the way that we're approaching this topic, we talked about loving our enemies, now we're talking about loving our neighbor, we're talking about loving our family. Who's easiest to love? Ourself. <laughs> ourself. And then our family, sometimes, sometimes, you know, Sometimes your family is the hardest to love. You think about it, because you know it goes from "I love you" to like "I can't stand you," because we know them best. And sometimes it's easier to love people if we don't know them that well. And, and then your neighbor, it's like, well, yeah. And then your enemy is like, well, they're on their own. Good luck to them. But that's again, that's not how we're supposed to be. And I think the interesting thing is Jesus could have said to this guy. Uh, well, he says, well, who's my neighbor? He could have said, to whom are you being neighborly? But he tells them a story. So he says, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem. Jericho's north, but Jerusalem's higher. So he descends down. And uh, he's going to from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest who was going down that on that road 
And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, which was the equivalent of uh, two days' wages. So he took two days' wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper. He said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Now, the, the interesting thing about this parable is that the two people that passed by, a priest and a Levite, were those who were involved in the worship of God directly through the temple. And when they see this man, it doesn't say who the man is, but when they see this man, not only they saw him, he says they all saw him, but the reaction was different. So when they see him, they not just they didn't just pass by. They passed by on the other side of the road. They purposefully avoided him. But when the Samaritan comes, now remember the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They, they, when they went when they had to go north, they would go around Samaria. They didn't even want to go through Samaria. And so when this Samaritan, who the Jews looked down upon, passes by, unlike the Levites and the, and the Levite and the priest, he stops and helps the man. And he doesn't help the man begrudgingly. I mean, this guy was on a journey. So obviously, he, probably had a, he was going somewhere. He was probably on a time schedule. It certainly probably wasn't convenient for him to stop and help this man. But he stops and he helps him. And he doesn't help him begrudgingly and even in a financial sense. He gives him two denarii and he says, whatever this guy needs, you take care of it. And when I come back, if you need more money, I'll pay you for it. And he says, Who's, who acts in a neighborly fashion? And the man recognizes this and he says, well, the one who showed mercy toward him. And so he says, go and do the same. I, John talked about this uh, last Sunday too. He, he gave that quote from... Uh, Gandhi, where Gandhi said, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. If, if I was to go like downtown Bethlehem, Allentown, wherever, and just stand on the sidewalk and conduct a poll and ask people, uh, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you think of Jesus, to describe Jesus? I think one of the, one of the attributes that people would uh, connect with Jesus would be love, right? When they think of, if, if you were to ask the same question, you were saying, okay, what, what's the first word that you think of when you think of Christians? Would it be love? I don't know. I don't know. Hopefully. But I don't know. Interesting to think about. So, <clears throat> if you could turn to 1 John 4.11. I want to spend some time going through this passage because we're we're supposed to love our neighbors and we're supposed to love each other as the body of Christ. And I think this passage kind of deals with this in a very interesting way. So I want to actually uh, read from verse 7. So 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, 
For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his, he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Uh, Verse 11. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You ever read that book, The Love Languages? Megan's not up here, so I don't know if she'll listen to this. So, but when we got engaged, she gave me the seven love language books. I feel like that's like required reading now. You can't, you can't get married unless you read the love language book because it's, it's coming up at some point, right? That's not my love language. Right? You're not speaking my love language. Uh, one of one of the things Megan likes is when I talk with her and listen to her. And one day she said. You know, there's two things that really bother me about you. The first thing is that you don't really listen to what I say, and I can't remember what the second thing was. <laughs> that was a joke. That was a joke. No. Her, her, if you asked her, it's words of affirmation. That's what she likes. Like, she likes me to tell her, like, I really appreciate how hard you work today. But to me, that doesn't come naturally. I, I don't do it on purpose. It just doesn't. I just don't think about it. Right, uh, but but when we love the way that people want us to love them, they like that, right? It really means a lot to them, and it's important. And it's interesting that uh, God tells us how He wants us to show our love for Him. Like it's sort of like God's love language. He He wants us. He commands us to to love Him, and He wants us to love one another. So if we love God then we should love one another because that's the way that he wants to show he wants us to show him that we love him in the way that we love others that's interesting right in verse 12 it's interesting he says because when we love others we're loving like god loves and we're showing them what god's what god is like because god is love so we it says it says in verse 12 
No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in him, and his love is perfected in us. So there's, there's two things in here I want to kind of break down. First is this idea that God abides, that, that it says uh, that God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So first of all, the abide. I, I, if you went to the, uh, Nathan's talk last night was like a preview of what I wanted to talk about today. So <laughs> last night we went to the Nathan's show, which was excellent, and he talked about abiding. Uh, the Greek word for abide is meno. i got to keep up with my slides here. Uh, and it means to stay, to remain, to put forth constant influence upon one. Uh, in Strong's Concordance, it says, the mystic phraseology, in the mystic phraseology of John, God said to Menno in Christ, to dwell, as it were, within him, to be continually operative in him by his divine influence and energy. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And as Christians, we're supposed to be rooted in him, knit to him by the spirit that we've received from him. And it goes on to say this. I think this is super powerful. It says uh, that his abiding in us is like something has established itself permanently within my soul and always exerts its power in me. Think about that. Something has established itself permanently within my soul and always exerts its power in me. I, I don't know about you, but I've found that to be true in my life during good times and bad times. Times when I feel like I'm very close with the Lord and times when I'm doing things that I know I shouldn't and there's something inside me that's established itself in me and is always exerting power in me. And it's like, hi, Josh. What are you doing right now? I'm here. Right? It's, it's established itself inside of me. Uh, Spurgeon... C.S. Spurgeon talks about this. He, he talks about uh, dwelling in Christ as a house for the soul. He says this. How much, see, he asks, how much does this house cost? You know, if you wanted to dwell in Christ and you say, well, how much, if he, he's, he's the house that I'm going to dwell in, how much does this house cost? He says, it's something less than proud human nature will like to give. It is without money and without price. Ah, you would like to pay a respectable rent. You would love to do something to win Christ. Then you cannot have the house, for it is without price. Will you take my master's house on, on a lease for all eternity with nothing to pay for it, nothing but the ground rent of loving and serving him forever? Will you take Jesus and dwell in him? See, this house is furnished with all you want. It is filled with riches more than you will spend as long as you live. Here you can have intimate communion with Christ and feast on his love. Here are tables well stored with food for you to live on forever. In it, when weary, you can find rest with Jesus, and from it you can look out to see heaven itself. Will you have the house? Ah, if you're houseless, you will say, I should like to have the house, but may I have it? Yes, here's the key. The key is, come to Jesus. But, you say, I'm too shabby for such a house. Never mind, there are garments inside. If you feel guilty and condemned, come. And though the house is too good for you, Christ will make you good enough for the house, and by and by, he will wash you and cleanse you, and you will be able to sing, We Dwell in Him. And he goes on to say that this house is perfect, it's secure, and it's everlasting. 
But what about the beginning of the verse? So he says we should be abiding in him, but then he says that no one has ever seen God. What, what's the point there? You say, well, wait a minute. This is First John, right? John wrote the Gospel of John. And in John 14, uh, it says, starting at verse 6, it says, uh, John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you have come to know me, you will know my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. John said to him, Have I been with you all so long, and have you not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak for myself, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. So so John was an eyewitness of this. He writes down what he saw. So what's he saying? Think, think about this. What does Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you don't believe that the, the words that I say, then believe the things that I've done. So he says, the Father is in me. So let's think about that. If we are abiding in Christ, and Christ is in us, then when people see our lives and listen to the things that we say, are they seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in me? When they see me, do they see the Son? Because Jesus said, when you see the Son, you see the Father. There's a saying that says, uh, thing doesn't like me. There are, there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you. And most people will never read the first four. But they'll, they'll take note of you. Especially if you claim to be a Christian and you say that. Then they watch everything you do. John talked about that last week too. Like, they have no problem pointing out the hypocrisy of a Christian. Even if their life is totally Hypocritical. That doesn't matter because you're claiming to believe and live up to a certain standard. Do you exemplify that standard? Do they see the love of Christ in our lives? My life? I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to me really, but uh, I think it's universally applicable. So, Jesus is saying, if, if you see me, you see the Father. Is that true of our life? If people see me, do they see His Son? Verse 13, it says, By this we know that we are abiding in him, and he he is in us, because he has given us his spirit. So how do we know? We know because we have the spirit. Right? It's that same kind of quote, Something has established itself permanently within my soul and exerts its power in me. Well, how do we know about the spirit? We know about the spirit from the Son. And notice, the Father sent the Son, eternal sonship, like the Son is, is not created, and this connects us with verse 15. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son. So, verse 14, why do we have the Son? We have Him because the Father sent Him. And the Son is the radiance of His glory, as we said this morning, and the exact representation of His nature. He came to show us what the Father's like. I know I've said this before, but Matthew 11:27 says, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son 
and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So everything that we know about the Father, everything that we know about the Father, we know through the Son. He's the exact representation of his image. The very words that he said, the things that he did, show us what the Father's like. And as we read from John 14.10, like, like I said, his very words are coming from the Father. And there's, and there's, when it comes to his plan of salvation, there's no division. It wasn't like the Father said the Son, but the Son didn't want to come. Like the Father wanted to do the, or the Son wanted to do the Father's will. The Father's will was to send the Son. The Spirit draws all men to the Son so that they could please the Father. There's total unity in the plan of redemption in the Godhead. And it says in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. When we come to recognize the truth of our position before a holy and a just God. Uh, I talked about a little bit about the idea that God is maximally great. So that, what does that mean? Like all great making properties would find their completeness in God, right? He is is the final expression of it. If there's anybody greater than God, then that would be God, right? So you say like, well, is it better to love or hate? Well, you say it's better to love. So God is God is love. He's perfectly loving. Is it better to be good or bad? Well, it's better to be good. God is the good. Is it better to be weak or strong? Well, it's better to be strong. God is om- omnipotent. Is it better to know some things or to not know anything? Well, it's better to know a lot. Well, God is all-knowing. Is it better to be corrupt or is it better to be just? It's better to be just. So God is perfectly just. That That's a problem, though. That's a problem. I was... I was Saying this week in school, I was talking about the Declaration of Independence and how a lot of times people want to kind of separate that from the Bible and just go to like a deistic view of God that that God is the divine watchmaker that just wound everything up. So in the in the beginning of the Declaration of Independence, they refer to nature's God and nature's law, and it says we're endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. The interesting thing is, even on a deistic worldview where there's just God and he doesn't intervene supernaturally. Romans 1 says that we can know what God's like through what he's, what's been created. And so if you think about it, uh, and, and Romans 2 talks about how he's put the law in our hearts and our conscience bears witness of it. That's why, as I always say this, if, if you're in any group of people anywhere in the world at any time, you say, have, have any of you ever known that something was wrong but you did it anyway? Raise your hand. Every single person raises their hand. That's strange, isn't it? And if God is perfectly just, what do we do about that? That seems to be a big, big, big problem. And it leads you naturally to the question, well, God has God revealed himself at all? And then you have to look at the Bible. You say, well, what do you do with the person to Jesus? That's the most important thing. If you wanted to single everything down to one question to ask somebody, the most important question there is in life, who is Jesus to you? That's it. Who is Jesus to you? Because if God is perfectly just, and I'm a sinner, and I've done things that I know I haven't should uh, I should not have done, but I did it anyway, then I am guilty before a holy and righteous God. And then what do I do with that? Well, there's only one one escape for me. Someone would have to pay the price for my sins, and that's what the Lord Jesus did. Uh, the other interesting thing here, as we go through what John's talking about, throughout the Bible, you see this connection between truth and love. 
we read in John, 1 John 3, 18, 19, Little children, let us not love with words or with tongue, not just say things, but in deed and truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. It goes on to say this, uh, and, and actually if you could flip to John chapter 17, because this kind of uh, reiterates some of the things that I was just talking about. John 17, this is the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. And he says in verse 17 of John 17, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. It's interesting how much Jesus talks about the truth right before he goes to the cross. He's standing before Pilate, and, and he says, Are you a king? And he says, I am, and I came to testify to the truth. And it's sort of strange, because Pilate didn't, he wasn't talking about the truth, but that's what Jesus was talking about, the truth. And he says, uh, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sake I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that would be us here this morning, that they may all be be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Think about that one. As we abide in him, he abides in us. So the idea is that we can become one with God. Now, we're not, we're not going to become God, but we can be in one accord with him, right? We can be on, on the same page, so to speak. Uh, but when you get to the love and truth thing, what's interesting, I was thinking about, uh, there was a friend of Megan one time, and, uh, one of their relatives died and she just she asked them because they, they, they were talking about like how they were presenting this to their kids they had young kids and uh, I think it was like a grandparent or something died and so uh, this person kind of was nominally Christian but Meg kind of wasn't sure if she really got the gospel or like where she stood and so she just asked uh, like well how how did you explain that to your kids like you know, do you think that they're saved? Do you think that they're in heaven? And this person kind of took offense to it. Of, of course they, of course they're in heaven. They were a good person, and you know, on and on that whole sort of thing. And and really, like that was one of the things that kind of separated the friendship because it was sort of like an affront. Like, how could you ask such a thing, and how could you question whether or not this person's in heaven? And that that's that conflict with the truth and the love. Like, if, if someone's doing something that's not right, and you love them, you have to tell them the truth. Because if you don't tell them the truth, then do you really love them? Because if, if we talk about agape love, if it's totally other-directed, and you want the best for the other person, then you have to be honest with them, and tell them the truth. Sometimes you don't like to hear the truth. And I think we could talk to, speak the truth in love, right? You don't have to be... You don't have to be out there like you're going to hell. Like that's probably not the most effective way. Uh, but you could. You have to be truthful with people, you know, and talk to them and say, "Listen, let's 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 think about this a little bit, right? You know, who who is Jesus to you? Put a stone in their shoe. Talk to them." The Lord Jesus continues in verse twenty-two: "The glory which you gave, the glory which you have given me, I have given them. Glory, the displayed excellence." Uh, in our behavior, do we display His excellence? 
that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see the glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Two, two interesting things here. That the love that God the Father has for the Son is the same love that he has for me. Which is hard to grasp, right? I, I think about this a lot. That... I I, to, like, I don't really understand it, but I can understand how the Father loves the Son. Because it says the Son always does the things that are pleasing to the Father. When I compare myself to the Son, I don't always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. But He loves me the same as He loves His Son. And it says that we are He like He wants us to be one in Him. And, and again, what's the idea of this? So that we have his love in us and we love in the same way that he loves so that we love other people so that when they see the love that he has for us being displayed in our lives, what are they going to do? They're going to say, there's something a little bit different about this guy or this girl. What's, what's your deal? And they see him in us. That's kind of the point. That's why, I mean, why does he just take us up to heaven now? Like, because we're, we're here to do, it says that he has redeemed us and, and appointed us to do work for him. We're the body. He's the head. We're here to do like, good deeds, it says in Ephesians. So part of that is to show, to demonstrate through our lives his love to other people. Do we do that? Do I do that? I mean, there's there's one side of things you could say like, well, I love I love I want to. In fact, I was talking about this too in school the other day. Like when you look at uh, how can a country govern itself? Well, in order to govern others, you have to be able to govern yourself. So the control is going to come from somewhere. It has to either come from inside or it has to come from outside. We have this thing at school called the e-pass. So every time somebody goes to the bathroom, I have to click on this thing and give them an e-pass to go somewhere, and it, and it tracks how long they're gone and all that stuff. And I say to the kids, why do we have this? We have it because uh, people don't follow the rules. Like, if everybody was here and they're like, I'm here to learn as much as possible, and I hate to miss your class, and so if I have to leave, I'm just going to go to the bathroom real quick, and I'm going to treat it just like it's the bathroom in my house, and when I'm done, I'm going to come back as fast as I can because I want to learn as much as I can. But that's not what happens. That's not the truth, right? So you water the hall for 15 minutes. So if you can't control yourself, the control has to come from outside. And and the idea is that when you become a follower of Christ, then Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. One of those commandments is to love one another. There's, there's some other commandments that we're going to talk about. But, but the, the point here is, why do I do that? Because if I'm saved... He's taken away my guilt. I'm, I am, I am seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. I'm already, my sins are paid for. So I'm not worried about getting, getting punished per se. But I should do it because I'm motivated by love. Not by fear. 
uh, in verse 19 it talks about uh, back in the first John uh, about why we do it we do it for love I, I was on a website and it was talking about what motivates you like sometimes you go to a, to a job interview and they'll ask questions like well why do you want this job like what motivates you and uh, there was a whole list of things like I'm motivated by hard work and providing for my family I'm motivated by professional growth and working as a team. I'm motivated by providing, uh, motivated to provide excellent customer service. Like you listen to all those things and it's like, that sounds corny, doesn't it? Why do I want this job? Because I want to be the best customer service representative that this place has ever seen. Like, okay, great. Like, what, what's the real reason, right? Tell me the real reason. What's the real reason why we obey Jesus? Because he loves us. Because he loves me. We love because he's first loved us. Uh, there's, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, let all that you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. I'm not gonna read it, but, uh, you guys all know about it, right? This is like the passage that's at like, probably 50% of the weddings you go to, Christian weddings, somewhere, somewhere in there they're squeezing 1 Corinthians 13 in, right? But the interesting thing about 1 Corinthians 13, the idea is that whatever gifts you've been given from the Lord, whatever you do, if you don't do do it in love, that is like love that that's motivated by His love for you, and so you're loving other people because of that. Uh, and no, it's not what I get out of it; it's what I give to other people. And if you don't do what you're doing or say what you're saying in a loving way, then He says, "I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love." I had become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It just falls to the ground, right? What sweet becomes sour. And at the end of that chapter, he says, now abide faith, but he says, but now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And I have up here, faith is necessary for salvation. You say, well, faith's important. Yeah, it is. Well, hope, it's the present enjoyment of a future reality. That's important. Yeah, that's true. But love should be the force that drives all we do. And I took this quote from John MacArthur. He says, Love is already the greatest, not because it will will outlast the other virtues, beautiful and necessary as they are, but because it is inherently greater by being the most godlike. God does not have faith or hope, but God is love. Again, sort of the the takeaway from all this is that we don't just hear these things, but we do them. Uh, And it's it's always easier, it's like I said, it's easy to love ourselves, and it's easy to love people that are like ourselves, right? It's hard to, it's hard to love the people that aren't quite like me, or don't see things like me. Uh, but we're called to love people. I want you ever, uh, I don't know if you've ever read The Hiding Place, Corey Tamboom. Powerful story about this lady and what happened to her. She was trying to hide Jewish people in their home, and the Nazis came and discovered them, and then they ended up in a concentration camp. And uh, she tells this story. Uh, says on what? So this is uh, after this is all over. She says on one occasion in 1947, while speaking in a church at Munich, she noticed a balding man in a gray overcoat near the rear of the basement room. She had been speaking on the subject of God's forgiveness, but her heart froze within her when she recognized the man. She could picture him as she had seen him so many times before in his blue Nazi uniform with the visored cap, the cruelest of the guards at the Ravensbrück camp where Corey had suffered the most horrible indignities and where her own sister had died. Yet here he was. At the end of her talk, 
coming up the aisle toward her with his hand thrust out. Thank you for your fine message, he said. How wonderful it is to know that all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Yes, Corey had said that. She had spoken so easily of God's forgiveness, but here was a man whom she despised and condemned with every fiber of her being. She couldn't take his hand. She couldn't extend forgiveness to this Nazi oppressor. She realized that this man didn't remember her. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands? You mentioned Ravensbrook, the man continued, his hand still extended. I was a guard there. I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true. But since then, I've come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It has been hard for me to forgive myself for all the cruel things I did, but I know that God has forgiven me, and please, if you would, I would like to hear from your lips, too, that God has forgiven me. And Corey responded, and she recorded a response in her book. She said, I stood there, I whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. It could have not been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. It was as simple and as horrible as that, and still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the stretched out one. As I did it, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Let me just close with this. For those of us who know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, First uh, Peter 4, 7 and 8 says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. It's sad to me how many people I know and have grown up with that are believers that don't speak to one another for one reason or another. That should not be. It doesn't matter what it is. It should not be. Because you're going to spend eternity with these people in heaven. So you're going to talk to them at some point. Love covers a multitude of sins. Like I, I mean, I'm sure there's people that are offensive and hard to get along with, but we are to love them. I'm not talking about discipline and correcting. That's a whole other thing. But we are to love people. And the other side of it is, and this is, Nathan said like almost the same exact thing. I already had this written down. He, he read from John 3.16, right? So God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves the world so much, everybody in the world, so much, that he would give the best that he had, his son, to redeem us back to himself. But the problem is, it says, uh, and this is the judgment, verse 19 of John 3, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They don't love him because they love the darkness. They love their, their deeds. So if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, then you will meet him as your judge. 
And and he his his arms would Peppy said this this morning, his arms are extended out. He loves you. He loves you so much that he gave himself for you. But he's just. And if and if you don't accept his forgiveness, then you accept his, his wrath, his judgment, it says. So I pray that everybody here knows him as their Savior, and I pray that we would show his love through our lives. Let's close in a word of prayer. God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great love for us. It says that we may know the unfathomable, the unknowable love of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we'll be able to spend eternity uh, understanding how much it was, how much you loved us, uh, what it meant for your son to come and to die for us. We pray that we would uh, show the love, we would be reflectors of your love to the people who we come into contact with. We thank you for the food that you've prepared downstairs and the hands that prepared it. Uh, we thank you for the fellowship that we have together. We think of Tammy and, and her mom who's in the hospital. We, we lift her up before you. We think of Jim Van Duzer and Martin and others where we, we commit them to your care. And we just uh, thank you for this time and pray your blessing upon our fellowship uh, after this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.